Hey everybody, it is episode 23 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris, one of your co-hosts. I am still waiting on my second co-host, Steve. For some scheduling reasons, I'm kicking this off without him because I was able to secure the one and only Allison Maxis as a quick intro guest so we can get some reactions from her second place overall finish at the Vancouver Marathon now 10 days ago. And so we've got Allison here. wanted to get a quick intro and some questions from her and then we'll bring Steve on to react to that as well as talk about some other intro things before we get in today's, into today's topic. Today's topic, we are talking about the coach-athlete relationship and giving you some tips on that. And we're also going to have, Steve and I are going to have a coach-athlete conversation with him, basically coaching me on what's next for me in training. So we'll get to that in a second. First, welcome, Allison. Good to have you back. Thanks. Good to be back. Allison was our episode two guest, so check that out if you haven't already. So as we start, before we dive into the race itself, Allison, I know you had a lot of anxiety and trepidation about switching to the marathon because the original plan was to do the half in Vancouver and you didn't really do any traditional marathon training leading up to this one. So talk about the decision to make the switch to the race and what was going through your mind as you made that decision and then ultimately stepped into the race not sure. Yes, so I really didn't have any kind of traditional lead up for a marathon or a half marathon. Um, I had been in Morocco with Rogue Expeditions up until really about three and a half, four weeks before the race. Um, So I had been running a lot, but it was all trail running, it was hiking, it was guiding, no workouts, nothing like that. I had not run 20 miles since the Austin Marathon in February, which I was also not very (laughs) prepared for. Um, So it's been an interesting few months. Um, I figured I could swing a half marathon by coming back. Steve said he'd put me on the track a few times, sharpen up, um, go out and do my best. So I did get on the track a few times when I got home. Um, Had good workouts, but it was 5K work. And I guess I I had the race director reach out to me, or the elite coordinator, uh, Lynn Kanuka, reached out and wanted me to consider switching to the marathon. Um, I think the field was a little light, and she... She's, I've been up there six times, and she kind of knows I'm better at longer distances and just kind of wanted me to try. Um, so I considered it, and my th- thought, I guess, was that I was not really prepared for a marathon or a half marathon. And so if I was just going to run an okay race, kind of just show up and call it a day at work, um, there's a little more money in the marathon, and I just sort of went for it. Um, but, yeah, once I got up there and getting on the starting line, I was really nervous. I was more nervous than I've been in a while for a race, kind of really second-guessing the decision and wondering why I thought I could show up and race the marathon. Were those (laughs) nerves because you didn't think you were ready or because you knew that you could win and that might be on the line? Oh, because I didn't think I was ready. (laughs) Okay. I knew I could run an okay marathon, but I figured it was going to hurt and it was going to be a very painful way to race a marathon. I was was definitely – the half marathon there also begins an hour and a half before the marathon, so it was over before we even got on the starting line. And I think hearing the results – and knowing that they were all finished already just really was making me second guess the decision. You were jealous. <laughs> yeah. you, were jealous. you wanted to be very, done very and having so. a beer. Very much so. I, th- I think all marathons, <laughs> marathoners can relate to that feeling. So you get into the race and it goes out pretty fast, at least yes, up front. Very fast. And you find yourself alone, I would assume fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Take us through your mindset early on. Um, early on, I'm pretty good at feeling out paces um kind of knowing where my effort level should be 
And of course up there everything's in kilometers, not miles, um, which I actually prefer. I think the kilometer markers come a lot faster, so you have a constant sense of progress. You see those signs every <laughs> three minutes and 50 seconds or so, rather than going by miles. Um, so early on, I actually, there was a small crew of guys that I was running with, and there was one man in particular, he was older, um, told me, he's like, oh, I'm running 236, what are you trying to run? I was like, well, not 236. Uh, if I can be low 240s, I'll be happy. He's like, well, you're going 236 pace right now, so just run <laughs> with me, just come run 236. So I ran with him for a while, um, and he he actually pointed up at the girl who was in second place, Ludmila, and he was like, oh, don't worry about her, she's going to fall off. I was like, I don't know, because I, I knew her history. She used to be a 229 marathoner. She's older now. Um, she's legit. She won the race two years ago in 237. Um, but she did go out very, very fast. I mean, she was with a crew of guys who ended up running sub 230. And I, I mean, I didn't go anywhere near them. I had no business doing that. So I was definitely running fast at the beginning, but it felt good. And I think in my head, I just, I knew at some point I was going to pay for it. <laughs> but, you know, you have, we had a perfect weather day. It was the first half of that course is pretty runnable. Um, so I had a little bit of company for a while, and then I was pretty much alone after that, aside from the bike lead, because they had a bike lead for the top three. Did you have doubts at any point? You find yourself alone. You're thinking, goodness, why am I doing this? <laughs> were there, yeah, those, for were sure, there those for questions? Sure. <laughs> well, even at the 15K mark, there's a U-turn, and so you can see exactly where you are at that point. And fourth and fifth were not far behind at all. Um, so I actually had a point, you know, at a week before going in on paper, I was like, oh, maybe I'll win. This would be really cool. And right. at that point, I was kind of like, I might not even be top five if I fall apart and these people stay strong. So I actually felt really good, but my mind was playing some serious negative games. Yeah. And the race progresses. I assume at some point, at what point did you realize second place was coming back? So the bike lead that I had from probably 20K on was actually giving me updates. She, she was on a radio, I guess, and she would tell me, okay, second place just crossed whatever point. So I knew she wasn't too far ahead, a few minutes, but nothing crazy. But I don't think in my head it really clicked that I was going to catch her or that gap was going to close. It was just more trying to hold it together. Um, probably around 30K was where I started, when she started giving me those updates and I realized that gap was getting smaller. And it was probably 33K. I actually had a, a friend, a woman named Karen, who did our bin trip with Rogue Expeditions last summer. She lives in Vancouver, and she came out on her bike, and she was amazing. I didn't know any other spectators out there. She was the only personal friend I had out on the course. And I probably saw her 15, 20 times during the race. And she kept showing up and telling me what the gap was and telling me I was going to catch her. And I was just waiting you know, for the wheels to come off around 30K or so. Because that <laughs> tends to happen in marathons. <laughs> and I knew I had gone out fast. Um, but it just kept not happening. And around 33K, I got on the seawall. And suddenly I could see second place. And it sort of clicked that I might actually catch this girl. Yeah. Um, did you try to go after or did you just stay in your rhythm? I think I went after. It wasn't a conscious decision. But there's an innate reflex in racing. And once you can see someone, you kind of start picking it up. And I could tell she was hurting. Um, and I, I really, I caught up to her pretty fast. Once I could see her, the gap was pretty small. And I think it was about 35K or so when I passed her. And it was pretty clear she wasn't going to go with me. I think her, she, she so went out way too fast. What was your mindset preparing for the, the pass? Because I've been in that place in a race when I'm trying to pass someone to get onto a podium. And you're thinking, I've got to do this def definitively so that they can't react. Now, maybe in a marathon it's different, especially that far from the finish. But what were you thinking as you went by her? Um, I think at first I was kind of expecting her to come back just because I know she's a very, very tough racer. 
Um, she's older, experienced, she's raced at very high levels, and I just see her as a very fierce competitor, and so I just was kind of expecting her to pass me right back. And you back. finished second to her a couple years ago, right? Uh, have you actually raced her? No, directly? I have not actually raced her. Okay, um, I've, every year she's been in the marathon, I've raced the half. She was injured last got year. It. Um, so no, we have not actually raced each other before. But I think once my bike lead got close to her, she picked up on the bike behind her and started looking over her shoulder. And she looked pretty scared, so that was a <laughs> bit of a confidence booster. Um, so I passed her. I said good job, which I meant. <laughs> but sometimes that can be. Right. When you're in a bad place, that can be a little bit intimidating. So I kind of hoped that would work. Um, but I, I mean, I just still felt really good. I couldn't figure out why I felt so good at that point in the race, but this is about 35, 35, so. 36 K. And so by that point I was like, I'm going to be good till the end, you know, it might start hurting, but it was not going to fall apart. And she just didn't look good. Um, but I, I didn't look behind me. I just passed her. And then a few minutes later, Karen, the friend on the bike showed up again and just reconfirmed like that gap's huge. She's not coming with you. Don't worry about it. Nice. And, on th and so then then you're looking ahead to leader pro but you're probably not because you're that seawall there because mm -hmm. i've run along that seawall and you sort of have it's sort of curved where you're right. you're looping around you sort of have these points where you can't see that far ahead but every time you turn a corner you get another beautiful view and right. another stretch of seawall yeah. but you're really not able to see that far ahead Correct. so when did you realize the leader was coming back not until i got off the seawall so it was at about 40k you just like about a mile and a half left um, you kind of turn, you make a right off the seawall, you kind of come back into downtown, and that's where the crowds come back. You kind of get up on this, you make a right, and you kind of run uphill on a piece of pavement, and then you get on a sidewalk. And I think it was that point people, like, there were actually crowds again, and they were all yelling, you're going to catch first, you're going to get first, and I still didn't see her. Yeah. And so I was like, I don't know what they're talking about. And at this point, the wheels weren't coming off, but they were getting shaky. And so I wasn't going to accelerate at that point. It was just right. hold it together, get to the finish. And right as I turned onto the sidewalk, so that's two turns before the finish, um, then I saw her, uh, Gladys, who ended up winning, and she looked really bad. Um, <laughs> I know it was her first marathon. Um, she's a legit runner. She's run a 111 half, but it was oh, her wow. first marathon. But it was clear her wheels came off a while ago. <laughs> and so I knew at that point, I couldn't really accelerate at that point, and it was just going to be a matter of whether I passed her before the finish or not, because I was definitely moving faster than she was. Right. But I couldn't push anymore. So it was just kind of a steady creep up, creep up, and everyone's going crazy. And I think we made that left-hand turn onto the street where the finish line was, but you still probably got 400 meters at that point. So it's a ways. Um, and I came up to her, it kind of started to click like, I might actually beat this girl, this would be crazy. Because <laughs> um, I've been pretty resigned to third place for almost the entire race. And so I came up next to her shoulder to shoulder, about 300 meters to go. and. Um, you know, part of my brain was thinking, don't let her know you're here, try to strategize. And the other part of my brain just saw the finish line and said, get to it right now. So I came up next to her and she kind of looked over at me and ha she had just enough to accelerate and run scared. And I just couldn't do it at that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was she must have been shocked to see you, though. I think so. She had led the whole race with no competition. And, you know, if maybe if I hadn't let her know I was there, I could have clipped her at the line. But people were yelling. She would have figured it out. <laughs> So what would, what did that feel like? What were the, the emotions, the adrenaline of it? You had to have gotten some kind of adrenaline rush as you did it, and then maybe some disappointment that followed when you couldn't um, finish it. So how did you feel? I wouldn't say there was actually disappointment. It would have been amazing to win. Like That would have been absolutely awesome. But at the same time, I was still so happy just to be in second because I was expecting to be third. I mean, early on, I was worried about being top five. So even to be in second, I was super happy with. 
And I still didn't realize I was going to PR until I crossed the finish line. So once I realized she was going to win when she made that move and I had nothing to do, I couldn't chase her down at that point. Um, I mean, I was super happy with second. And <laughs> I expected, because I kind of stopped running splits or paying close attention after 30K or so. I'd just been racing. And um, I figured I was going to come in around 241, 242, which I was going to be very happy with considering no training, no right. prep, no business running a marathon. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until across the finish line and I saw it was 239 and change. And um, that was such a, I mean, the PR was a better feeling than yeah. winning. Um, so I wouldn't say there was any disappointment at all. I think I, I did everything I could do. I felt proud that I raced. Um, it wasn't a matter of getting out kicked necessarily. Um, I was closing gaps. So um, I was super thrilled with it. So what are your takeaways from this one? Obviously, you got the PR, you got mm -hmm. a podium, you got a payday. Your second payday in a few months, if yes. you count Austin, which has to feel pretty good. It does. So, what are your lessons? What do you, what do you, as you think back now, having ten days to think about it, what do you think mm -hmm. about? Um, I think, I think at this point, I've raced enough marathons. I think my base is here to stay. I mean, I've been running very high mileage for what since two thousand nine, two thousand ten now, years and years of it. Um, I really trust that my really unorthodox methods are working for me in terms of keeping me strong at all times. So I knew I could run a decent marathon pretty much any time, whether I can properly train or not, um, to show up and run what I consider a really great race on almost no training was shocking. But what I think happened, I think I kind of hit a new level of fitness prepping for the trials last year. I had a proper training block with Steve, a solid three months of really, really good training. I think I was the fittest I'd ever been, but I didn't get the day at the LA trials to show it. Um, but I think once you kind of hit a new level of fitness, it gets that much easier to get back to it. Um, so it was really, really encouraging. Um, that my last PR, I ran under 240 almost three years ago. So it's been a while. It was a 22nd PR. And I think when I do get a chance to properly train again and have two, three, four months to really focus on it, I'm really excited about what I can do. Um, I think there's still a lot of potential um, once I can get that period of yeah, time. Yeah, there's which, more in the tank. So yeah. is that coming? I know you've got more trips coming mm -hmm. and you've got, you know, a wedding coming at some point. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> a lot. Game. So lot when up. will you next race? Um, that's a great question. I don't know that I can race again this year. Obviously, Mallory and I are taking on trying to set the FKT on the Wonderland Trail in August. So that's going to dominate everything from now till August, trying to be ready for a hundred mile run, um, which I'm really excited about. I think it's really important to take mental breaks, get away from the road, do something totally different because that'll get me excited to be back on the road. Um, my winters are still pretty open, although our year is going to start much earlier next year with rogue expeditions. I think we have Patagonia mid January. So that's going to kind of cancel out a lot of racing opportunities, but April, May are still fairly open. I would like to go back to Vancouver. Um, but you know, the window for the trials will open this fall. And so it'll, I'll need to settle on a race, get my qualifier. Um, and I think the next goal is going to be getting the A standard, mm -hmm. um, for my third trials, which is what I really want to chase down. Um, so that we are having more trips, we're getting more busy. We're also bringing in more help. And so I think my schedules actually might be a little more conducive to it. Um, the winters though, I think will still be my prime time to have a block of time in place with a training group and, you know, a little bit of structure. Awesome. Well, Congrats again on your race. Thank Very you. inspiring. Inspiring to me personally because having been in the best fitness of my last of my <laughs> life last year at this time, it's encouraging to know that, you know, I can get back there if uh if I do the work. Yeah, you've already done the work, so <laughs> you don't need quite so much the next time. So 
as we close quickly, what trips are coming up that people can sign up for if they want to check out Rogue Expeditions? So this fall, we've still got a handful of spots for all of our trips. Um, we have one Slovenia only. We've got one that is Slovenia and Croatia. Those are both in September. And then into October, we've got two separate Morocco trips. We've got a short mountains and coast that's mostly trail running out in the mountains. That's a seven day trip. And then we've got our full Sahara trip happening end of October. Um, and then Kenya is October 1st to 10th. And they can still sign up for all those? They can still sign up for all of those. All the price increases are happening over the next month. So it's a good time to do it now. And then we just opened our spring 2018 trips on Monday and we've got signups happening for all of those. So best thing to do is check out that website. Rogueexpeditions.com. Awesome. Well, thanks, Allison, for joining again. Congrats. We Thank will you. hopefully have you on more frequently. We'll talk to you awesome. soon. Thanks. Now Steve joins me. We just finished the Allison interview. Hello, he, Chris. Hey, Hello, uh, <laughs> podcast world. The magic of editing brings Steve in at the close of that, even though he was he was not here several hours ago. I was ago 25 miles when away. I recorded it. <laughs> but Steve has listened to that interview now, and I wanted to get his reaction as Allison's coach. I know you guys... Steve had a conversation yesterday, sort of your first one-on-one -on -one conversation post-race to recap things. So what's your reaction to Allison's result? I guess I had three basic things, three basic takeaways from it. Number one, I thought it was Allison's second best race that she's ever run since I've been coaching her. And a lot of people will uh, say, are you kidding me? And then this was a PR. She ran um, a you know, an incredible race, the way the race played out, there was more drama than you would have expected, but I'm sorry, the Olympic trials to me are, uh, are, are the real show. And so maybe a Boston or a New York, if she was second or, or something like that at a race at that caliber, I might change my mind, but the Olympic trials, you know, we set up for Allison to tee off a great, a great race and perhaps even a career. We didn't know where she was at at that point. We didn't know if that she was going to continue to race at a really high competitive level post the trials. So we put a lot of time and energy and effort in that. And she slayed that race. Yes. Her time was not particularly fast, um, but she performed incredibly well on, in terrible weather conditions of which normally Allison folds like a chair in <laughs> hot conditions. So, you know, for, for me, I, I'm st I was still, I still consider that her Olympic trials is her best race, at least in the context of my coaching her. But this was really close. And um, I had a lot more confidence in Allison going into the race than she did. She done. She mentioned a few key workouts. As she said, we did some 5K work, which is a little unusual with Allison. We don't do a lot of that because it costs her a lot. Physiologically, she breaks down. She has some other issues that happen when we do too much of that. But I wanted her to get a few of those kind of hurts. You know, As I've said in this podcast before, and if I haven't, I've said it to many people before, the marathon and that 5K are really, really similar races in the way they hurt. Their duration is incredibly different. But if you take the race's scale and you scale them, they're really similar. And so she did a really key 5K workout where she went in and out 200s, which is one of, our, one of our classic workouts. And she ran really fast. She ran faster than her PR for the 5K. And I was like, this is a key indicator for her. And she did it in the middle of nowhere completely all by herself, like in, I don't know, North Texas, somewhere in the middle right. of nowhere. So when she told me the results of that workout, I was like, oh, man, we're going to get a good result. Of course, at that time, I thought we were running the half. Right. Um, but, you know, we talked a little bit about that decision-making process, and I was thankful to be able to be a part of that. She, she is really kind and generous in the fact that even though my coaching role with her sort of only sits within a two- to three-month window, she's always checking in with me 
um, to see what my viewpoint is on things. And that, that is really, as a coach, that makes you feel really, really good. And so, you know, I was just like, what is Allison's career right now all about? I mean, I knew, I didn't know that she was really ready to go under 239, but I knew she was ready to run 240 or so. And But I thought, you know, what's this all about? It's about, it's about making money. She's a professional now. And, you know, people may, may scoff at that. But Allison Maxis, if you'd asked her 10 years ago if she was going to be a professional athlete who could generate revenue through her running, she'd have told you, she would have laughed at you. She would have said, there's no way. $4,000 in two months. And I that. mean, yeah, it's not a ton of money, but it's, it's worth it's doing. And, yeah. and, you know, I think it's um, just a testament to her. And so she switched. I also think she has, she does have a tendency to, to so as much as she was nervous about the marathon, it's her, it's her, it's her comfortable place so even on a bad day the kind of pain she goes through in the marathon is much more her cup of tea than the pain she goes through in even a half marathon but um i think that she made the right decision so my first takeaway was second best race my next takeaway was as allison indicated maybe a little more um humbly than she should have that was next level shit she's on another level and she proved it to herself, which I don't think she had proved before. I had already known it because of the stuff that I'd been seeing from her on her break times away. When she came back, what was going on? Um, I was like, this girl's on another level. And, you know, we're, we do this podcast talking about sound training techniques and the way to progress and how to get better. And Allison basically takes her entire ideas and snaps them over her knee and says, you don't have to have a plan. Which is not really true. If you look at our fundamental principles, she's following a lot of those fundamental principles, but she's certainly not do- going through a really concrete, planned out method. And I think for Allison, that is so crucially key. And the kind of fitness that she develops is what we talked about a couple weeks ago, Chris, resilience. And Allison has, did not always believe herself to be a resilient person. And now she is confident that she can suffer with anybody she may not be as fast as a Shalane Flanagan or a or a Amy Craig but she knows that those women or any other man for that matter even Elliot Kipchoge well maybe we'll keep him out of it <laughs> but even Galen Rupp won't hurt better than Allison will hurt and will not be able to respond better than Allison responds that's a huge that's an incredible confidence boost so I think that is true now and you can hear in her voice in that interview I heard it I think you probably heard it I definitely heard it the, yesterday when we had a, a post-op after the race so it's interesting to see how her unorthodox training techniques, following pretty sound principles but still unorthodox, has built a resilience in her that is crucial and key. And finally, most importantly, I think at the very end of it all is just that if you stay with it, if you stay committed and consistent, magic will happen. And Allison is a key indicator of that. People want to stop things so early if they don't see excellence or if they don't see some level of facility or, or a level of success that bears out the time and energy they put into it. Allison's about process, not results. Results, when they come, are gratifying. You're super thankful for them, and you'll even take that check and put it in the bank account. But at the end of the day, Allison is doing this for another ulterior reason altogether, which is it's a part of her process. It's part of who she is. And when that happens, that and you bu- combine that with next level training, which is where she's at, was my first point, a resilience that is much higher than we've ever seen for her and a belief in that resilience. And you combine that with a long-term vision and practice. Now she's looking at the 2020 Olympic trials to perhaps have her best day ever when four years ago, three years ago, we were saying maybe that was going to be her last day. So folks, Keep your eyes on the prize. If you believe in this as a path with heart, if you think that running is something you want to be good at, this is the one sport. It's like shooting free throws. 
You don't have to be seven foot two to be a great free throw shooter. And your team might need you shooting free throws. Practice, we'll do it. Keep practicing and practicing. In our sport, it doesn't, you don't have to be seven foot two. You don't have to be anything. You just have to keep being consistent. Our sport rewards that kind of that kind of thing. And Allison is a key example of that, in my opinion. Consistency is king. Her story also, specifically around this race, but also around other races she's had, shows you that you don't have to have a perfect buildup to have a good race. Everybody often seeks that perfect build or that perfectly set up situation where they're going to go in PR. And yeah, we believe in command performances, of course, but there are times when you don't have a perfect buildup and you can go out and still slay the dragon if you approach it the right way mentally. And that's what happened. I, I actually would argue that Allison didn't approach it mentally correctly in a lot of ways, at least from the time the gun went off to the finish to, to the 30 K point. But beforehand, she heard me repeatedly. We had a long, we had a short conversation. Um, and, and another thing, Allison didn't talk about this, but Chris and I know she was not in the most emotionally stable state when she went into this. And we're not going to go into all the challenges that Allison had, but she runs a business um, and she's crucial into the way that business functions. And we, she went through a lot of choppy water going into this race that was not ideal in any way. But right before sh she left, I said to her, you are ready for something special because I saw in that 5K workout that you did that you're as fit or fitter than I've ever seen you before. Don't. Be too conservative. Take a risk. We had a different plan for that race, but, you know, the gun went off. Those girls went off like jackrabbits, and Allison, have, and, you know, that's another thing Allison does. She just adjusts, and she's, but she wasn't afraid to be aggressive, and I think that was really key. Even though she was questioning on the starting line, wishing she was running the half, she said, I'm going to be aggressive. I'm not afraid to be aggressive. Even this guy telling her. I mean, you think Allison two years ago, if some old man told her that she was going to run two, on 236 <laughs> pace, she would have put the brakes on immediately. And she didn't do that. She, she just rolled, rolled, she rolled with it because yeah. she said, I'm going to be aggressive. So kudos. I, I tip my hat to her. She is uh, <coughs> just an amazing athlete to coach. Although our coaching relationship is a little unorthodox, it, is, um, it brings meaning to me in ways that uh, I can't even explain to people. And... She's someone to root for, for sure. All right, so transitioning to a couple other quick things before we dive into our coach-athlete conversation. So we got to talk collegiate track and field. We haven't talked about it. It's been happening. The, the season has been building. We haven't talked about it because it's a sort of a, a can of worms that we've been hesitant <laughs> to open with other things happening, but we're, we've got to talk about it now, especially as conference championships just happened this past weekend. A couple of highlights that we wanted to mention that we wanted to talk about upcoming NCAA regionals, which are happening here in Austin the weekend after this one publishes. First result that we got to mention is from Central Texas high school athlete, went to Rouse High School, Maddie Borman. She actually worked for us as an employee on the sales floor in our Cedar Park location, trained at Rouse, also was a soccer player competitively in the area. She was a freshman in high school when she won the state cross country championship. So as one who's always shown a lot of potential, but since that point kind of had some ups and downs through her high school career, went to train at the university of Colorado with the great bark wet bore and, and Heather Burroughs. And let's Heather, give, let's, and let's give credit to Heather. Correct. She's <laughs> a very important cog in that wheel. And she had a breakthrough performance at the PAC 12 conference championships, winning the steeplechase in a time of 10 Oh six, which was a PR for her, but also a pretty darn impressive result for a freshman in college and doing it at the Pac-12 is arguably the most competitive conference meet out there is pretty impressive. I've got to also say I watched the race this morning. She came into the final hurdle in third. 
Wow. Came over that and then passed the two in front of her, including her own teammate, to to win that race. So she finished really strong with a nice closing kick. And it's clear that those two freshmen, her and her teammate who finished second, are anointed to be the next Shalea Kip, Jenny Simpson, Emma Coburn at the University of Colorado with a, a long history of, of steeplechase champions. So talk about Maddie's result quickly. Well, Maddie... I've been following Maddie's career since she was in sixth or seventh grade. Um, her coach at Rouse High School, Kelly Thompson, I I recruited some athletes when he that he I recruited some athletes to go to the University of Texas in the years that um, I coached there. And um, he Maddie went through a lot of challenges in her in her high school career. Um, she was a, a a stellar. When I say stellar, I mean an v- extremely good soccer player. And she. Uh, but she, she, and she didn't really like running. She didn't like the solo aspect of running. I remember Kelly and I having multiple conversations when I was a coach at Texas about how he, what he could do. And I was like, you can't do anything, buddy. You just got to let it flow and you got to just keep asking her the question. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And how bad do you want it? Um, you know, they worked really hard to get to the university of Colorado. Colorado didn't was definitely played hard to get with Maddie. I know that because I was a little, I had a little piece in the, in that process. Um, but I mean, Maddie's a true freshman. To run 10.06, I coached the steeplechase for many, many years, and I was a steeplechaser myself. 10.06 in your freshman year to win the Pac-12 Conference Championship. Folks, that is not, that is an amazing result. And for Colorado to have two true freshmen, I mean, these are true freshmen. They didn't go through, they didn't go through a, a full year and a half, two year process to get prepared to do that. Maybe they went through a semester, right? They probably had, I don't know that they ran cross, but they, definitely you know they they were ready for this day and and as as mark and heather do they have their athletes ready for command performances that is and and maddie is a competitor she's super talented you will definitely be hearing more from maddie in fact i would not be surprised if you hear more from maddie this year at 1006 that's not too far away from being in the mix with a k to go and as we as you said watching that video I mean blood in the water when there's she blood in the it. water she was a shark and it was a championship race so the time was a championship time i mean you gotta Absolutely. have slower times as people are playing the games with the paces if that was a time trial who knows what she could do i mean i think this definitely puts her in the conversation for ncaa's potentially even u.s champs if they want to go there with her i know sometimes that's a question for development she'll probably junior this year because there's a lot more to benefit point, from that right? she'll probably go juniors this year but the thing is is that She's showing what people knew about Maddie, but maybe she didn't know about herself. So we're going to go into some of this conversation a little later in our other topic about what people believe in themselves yeah. as opposed to <laughs> yeah. what they don't. But I think that uh, Maddie had a heart to go to Colorado and to go to the best place. And um, as a college athlete who in my high school senior year, I had some really bad races and some really good races. I went where I thought I could get better. And that decision is always a great a great decision. If you have a chance to train with people who are better than you and to be in an environment where cha- where great results happen, whether at the collegiate level or if you're running as an adult, take that opportunity because there's something about being around um, an esprit de corps that is championship or command performance focused. It will be a game changer for your racing. And for her, she's in a lineage now that's that's huge with those other athletes I mentioned that came before in the steeplechase at Colorado. So it'll be exciting to see her career play out. We're rooting for you, Maddie, here from Austin, Texas. We also have to mention, speaking of Austin, the University of Texas was competing at the Big 12 Championships. 
The men came out with the win. Again, I think it's the third. Again, third year in a row. Three and, Pete. And then the women got second by a fairly narrow margin. It came down to the last two events. They lost by four and a half points, which isn't many when it comes to all of those events on the track. So big results from Texas. You coached there only, what, a few short years ago. What are your reactions on that? A couple things. Uh, congratulations to Mario Satana, the head coach. Um, we many Some people may know or don't know, he has had a very tough last six or 12 months. Um, and to see him come back, get the ship righted, focus and get the intent where it needed to be, and to have his staff rally back behind him and to get the job done on the men's side, amazing. Um, I'm sure he's extremely disappointed to not get both the wins. Um, it was in their hands. In fact, unfortunately for Texas, I think the distance runners didn't get it done that day. The last two races, their their star in Sandy Rains just had a bad meet. She had a great race a couple weeks before in, Colorado, in, uh, in Stanford, and she just didn't have the meet that she needed to have to get the points that they needed. And that's no... One of the things I want to tell people, you can't put a loss on one person or even one event. But I'm sure that that didn't help. And... Um, Especially when you see the points that got piled up in the sprints. I mean, yeah. I mean, what they're doing in the sprints right now. And I was coaching there at the University of Texas with the with the intimidable Bev Kearney, who got it done. I think they're getting more done now than they ever have before. The kind of domination that's going on in a sprint-based conference that Texas is putting on, impressive. That was an incredibly impressive result from the hundred, from the four by one, all the way to the four hundred and into the four by fours from the University of Texas, especially on the women's side. But you know what? The men don't get any credit in the sprints. And Zach Galavach, who used, you know, was at Texas Tech for a long time, he's getting the job done for them on the men's side with the sprints. And uh, it's, but, but the women's sprinters at the University of Texas, again, proved to be just unbelievable. Yeah, and if you're a Longhorn, we'll talk about this and more in just a second. As I mentioned, regionals is coming up at Texas. We'll actually be at on campus there from May 25th through 27th, so that's the weekend after this thing posts. So go check it out as a fan because it's fun to be around that weekend anyway. I like running around that area because you see all the athletes warming up and you kind of get to feel the energy of the Town event. Lake is crazy yeah. that weekend. And you see yeah, some <laughs> crazy talent <laughs> on Town Lake doing cool-down jogs and warm-ups yeah. and things like that. But we'll get to that regional conversation in a second. I also wanted to mention before we get to that, Texas A&M, the decathlete there, Lyndon Victor, set the collegiate record for the decathlon, took Trey Hardy, former Longhorns record, also former world champions record, to now to now take that record to Texas A&M in the decathlon, and he's proven that he's the heir apparent to Trey and Ash Neaton, who's retiring or just retired this year. So it's good to see that the U.S. has another up-and-coming decathlon uh, athlete who will be competing with the best of the world soon enough yeah you know i bleed burn orange um there's no doubt about that and i have all my life made aggie jokes and i will continue to make aggie jokes but i have a huge and immense respect for the program that pat henry's put together over there at the university at the at texas a&m university um the aggies from top to bottom their coaching staff is par excellence they're amazing and to see the the the, the level of success that they're having if you think about the people that left that program in the last year i mean the number one 800 meter runner in the country soon in my opinion to be the world i mean there's people who will argue with that but i mean donovan brazier in his freshman year runs 145 and i mean it's 
they're they're just doing amazing things over there. And this, though, I don't think people the decathlon used to be the greatest sport on earth historically in the late 1800s into the 19 1900s um we had amazing success all the way to 1976 with bruce caitlin jenner um and into the last few years with with that we've had with um trey hardy here in central texas and international and, and nationally and internationally and obviously the greatest decathlete at this point in time in my opinion ashton eaton who who was unbelievable this guy's this guy's that level already and and decathletes get better with age man they they get better as they go along so but this is a guy to watch man and and i i hope that people don't just hear with our excitement about all track and field that we're just distance fans we are mostly distance fans because we do it but we we really understand what other things are going on in the sport especially the decathlon which is just a real and the women's heptathlon which are really cool events and you have to if you're going to be a true fan in my opinion I wasn't going to talk about it because you mentioned that. I've got to mention we also have to be excited about Noah Lyle, who ran sub-20, only the fourth teenager in history to go under 20 seconds. 19 years old, ran 19.9 in Shanghai Diamond League beat. He's a guy to watch, especially as Bolt retires as the potential heir apparent in the 200. So, yes, we are total fans, not just distance fans, (laughs) but that was a tangent I had to cover because you mentioned it. So impressive. It would be interesting to see, going back to Victor, his point total would have been fifth at Rio. So he's already, and that's without really being pushed. So he's already there, and this is at a conference championship. So he's already there, at least relative to the best in the world. So it will be interesting to see how he progresses. Getting back to the regional discussion, as I mentioned. One second. Before you go there, we're not going to get a chance to cover this if we don't cover it now. I just want to tip my hat to the online resource of letsrun.com. Anybody who is interested in the things that Chris and I are talking about from a fan-based perspective, that's a great place to go. It's unintended. Li- don't go to the forum right off the bat. That's a little intimidating. But there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But go just to the front page once a week or once, a- or once every two weeks or just go to the one link they have almost every... I can't remember which day of the week it is, but they'll do a week in review each week and they'll they'll tap down all the major things that just happen in track and field from the perspective of it's distance focused mostly but they've got a huge appreciation for the throwers and the jumpers and the decathletes and everything that's Weldon and Robert Johnson who are Dallasites who are friends of John Shrupp who was just on our show they're they're good buddies they've been coached by the same coach the great John Kellogg who's another guy we should talk to talk about or two at some point in time yes. But anyway, let's run. I just wanted to tip my hat to those of you who think you might want to be track fans and you're hearing Chris and I talk about it, but you're a little intimidated about where to start. Go to Let's Run. It's a little overwhelming. It's a little bit like a 1990s uh, web page with not a whole lot of fanciness, but it's great insight, great intel, and, and, and pretty thoughtful uh, stuff. And then if you want to dive down into the forum, good luck with that. But <laughs> I have spent days in... Yeah. depths there but you know one of our one of the guys who we give a little shit to but we also say he's one of the great coaches of all time is R- Renato Conova he posts on that forum consistently if you call him out he will post he's posted the workouts that athletes have done in the most recent extreme races the guy at Doha who ran 3,000 meters who we're going to be talking about soon in terms of his 5k the guy who could maybe knock down Mo Farah he he, he outlined his key workouts from the last six six weeks 
on a forum. I mean, that. so if you're into this shit and you're really excited about it, consider going there. Anyway, sorry, that was an aside, but I just needed to say yes, it. Yes, letsrun.com, definite shout out there. I go there mostly daily. Yes, yeah, so get, do I. <laughs> to, get, to get all this, all of this information and more. So to wrap quickly, as I mentioned, regionals, West Regionals is coming to Austin this coming weekend after this post, which is the, pre- they call it the preliminary round before NCAAs, the final championships for collegiate athletes. That format has changed, especially over the last few years. They used to have a descending order list where everybody was ranked by time or point total or distance, and then the top X would go to NCAAs in a certain event. Now they have this regional concept that's iterated a bit. Explain to people what they're watching as it relates to regionals and how it works in sort of the layman's cliff notes version. Sure. I'll try to do this as quick as possible. The history I, When I ran collegiately, they took the top 24 times in a descending order list. So if you ran in the 800, if you ran 147.8 and you were 25th on the list, you didn't go to the NCAA championships. If you ran 121, whatever the number I just said, a half a quarter of a second faster, then you went to the national championships. It was a really hard line. Um, And many people still think that that's the most fair and reasonable way to do it. But the NCAA has different ideas. In the NCAA, um, in in the late 90s, early aughts, they just decided that the sport of tra- they just put pressure on the te- the U.S. Track and Field Coaches Association, which is sort of the the collegiate coaches um, uh, think tank that you know that 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 they put pressure on them to change the format to qualifying for the NCAA championships because they really value head to head competition, and this comes from first of all the NCAA basketball tournament. But those of you who are not really fans of track and field. You'll understand the NCAA basketball tournament, but you'll also see how this has significantly changed in the NCAA's vision of this in the way that they have selected with the N- with the NCAA football championship, where they have decided they needed they needed to have more than just one game decided by a computer. They wanted and valued head-to-head competition. So track and field got pushed down that direction to say, you must give us head-to-head competition. Um, I don't know what the what for, where for, or how they were going to put the collegiate coaches' arms behind their backs to make it do it, but they, they did it. They created initially a regional system, which is what you called it, um, which was four regions, and then those four athletes from those four regions would compete head-to-head in their events, and they would take basically six from each of those four regions to get the same 24 people to go to the national championship. Then they realized that the regions weren't very paired very well, and they, they were not really fair the way that they had gotten distributed because they were doing it regionally which is not the way that powerhouse that way that these then the southeast conference or anybody in the southeast it was it was way too competitive for the sprinters to get there because there's not a whole lot of sprinters in the pacific northwest and there's not a lot of sprinters in the northeast there are some but not as many and so they were not these balances of power that they tried to get so then they decided to go to a two region system and then they decided to just get rid of the region altogether and they decide that this is not a region this is the ncaa championship preliminary round so all these athletes who have run these times, and I can't remember what it is, I guess 48 athletes in each event on a descending order list. So they still got the descending order list, which uh, let's just leave <laughs> that Pandora's box alone. But they've got, still got a descending order list, but now they've got to compete to get a spot on the starting line of the first preliminary of the finals of the NCAA championship. So I don't know if I made it more confusing or less confusing, but the basic thing here is head-to-head competition is valued. There's two arguments here. I'm a fan of this idea conceptually 
because as an athlete, my coach always got me ready for command performances. And there were teams all over the country who would get their athletes ready for the fastest race of the year. So now that would be at the Stanford invite or the Cardinal invite. And you could run in a really perfect weather conditions and get everything lined up against just the right competition and time trial your way to getting a starting spot at the NCAA championship. And I can see the problem with that because that would value someone who's really fit at the wrong time of the year for when the national championship should be set up. And we were seeing results where a quarter of the field, after the gun went off at the NCAA championships, mailed it in because they weren't fit enough to actually compete or they'd gotten hurt or some other thing happened and they were they went because they got per diem and they went because their coaches wanted to say they got athletes to the NCAA championship, but they weren't ready to compete. And so as a competitor who was always ready for a competitive command performance and as a, with a coach who always got us ready for that it was frustrating many years I was ready to go to the NCAA championships but I hadn't run the time fast enough because I didn't go to the right meet or in the right place to get it done and I couldn't compete my way into it so that's really cool that they've done that but the problem is is that it, it's just in some events it's just not good the pole vault it's got so many variables that could happen. We want the best pole vaulters at the finals of the pole vault. The decathlon. Now, the decathlon is, is, is not subject to the regional system or the preliminary system. They are still a descending order list because that event is too hard to do over and over again. They've talked about moving the 10,000 meters out of it because it's also difficult to do that. And believe me, those guys who are, on the Western, who are, on the, who are in the Western preliminary region coming to the city of Austin, Texas, at the end of May and running a race in 95 degree temperatures, it is it is not it, it is literally going to be a farce. And so people who want to watch it, you're going to watch it and you're going to wonder what the heck's going on here. This is not really head-to-head competition. Well, the top 20 guys are going to be going after it ferociously. They'll be tearing each other's heads off. But the guys in the back is going to be so hot, they're going to mail it in and they're just going to say whatever. And it's going to seem not like their first round. So it's just a lot of questions going on about what all this process is. I think currently... It's almost better to go back to a descending order list, but my heart says I love to watch competition. So I don't know if I made it confusing or not confusing. Well, just but to well, clarify this for me. So West Regionals, men's 10K, there's going to be 24 athletes towing the line. 12 will 12 go. 12 of those will go. So the top 12. The top 12. The now, top in, 12 finishers. Now, there's a weird thing. So the 5K, this is really crazy. In the 5K, because they're calling it the preliminary round, I had an athlete that this happened to, they're going to do two heats, and they're going to take six and six. Or five and five with two fastest times, which is how preliminary rounds go. You know this, Chris, but right. basically the way that preliminary happens is they take the first five or the first set number that come across the finish line, and then they take the next fastest times because they don't want it to just be competitive because some heats are way faster and some heats are slower. Right. There's a lot of there's a lot of interesting intrigue and in all of that, but they're still running. They are running this meet as a preliminary round, which really confuses the fan base. So fans, if you're coming to Austin, if you're in Austin and you're going to watch this meet, go and watch it. But watch it for the athlete performances, not for what the subtext of what you think athletic competition is from a team perspective. There's no team results in this thing. They're not going to score it. They're not going to determine who the number one team is. They're just going to use it as the first round for the next championship. One good thing for all the track fans in the, in, that are in the Central Texas is y'all get to watch the best in the world. Come out and watch. Yeah. Come out and watch Oregon and Stanford and Texas. Texas and UCLA and Arizona and all these amazing programs, Texas A&M, watch these athletes compete live in the flash, and it's super, super cool. It's really amazing. It's just a weird format and one that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people, but just suffice it to say really quickly and shortly, 
It's the first round. These people all earned the right to get there, but they're going to have to earn the right to go to Eugene, Oregon, which is now pretty much in perpetuity, which is bullsh- bullshit, by the way. I'm not going to go. Separate conversation. I'm going to go another conversation. But they always have the NCAA championship. They always have the U.S. championships. They always have the Olympic trust. Anyway, I'll leave that alone. But they're going to go to Track Town, USA, and compete for what will be and always is, in my opinion, the greatest track and field meet of the year is the NCAA championships every single year. If you want a little taste of it and you're in Central Texas, go watch the preliminary Come round. Check it out. Yep. In Austin. Well, I think just to summarize, it's the prelim round. You got to think of it that way. It's not a meet in and of itself. It's a prelim round to get people to the next round, just as if that prelim round were happening in the same place. Correct. To bo- you know, as the final would. So hopefully people are less confused, more informed. Hopefully. But I'm not who knows? sure. Who knows? We're in the business of probably confusing more than helping. But but that not wraps our up next topic. That wraps up our intro. <laughs> hopefully not with our next topic. <laughs> that wraps up our intro, which went long, but we're gonna keep rolling. And we're talking about the coach athlete relationship. We're gonna start this just going straight into it. We're gonna have as the foundation for this conversation, a one-on-one coach-athlete conversation, which is the one between you and I. Steve's my coach. I'm his athlete. We're also co-hosts on the show. We're due for a one-on-one conversation to talk about my training, so we thought, why not just do it live? We haven't scripted this. We haven't planned it. We haven't talked about any of these elements before this moment. Are we going to promise not (laughs) to cut? And paste. Well, I, I never do. That's yeah, so, true. You I don't. Mean, we're, too less, to do, you know, we're too busy yeah, to do. We're too busy to do. More that. or less. Like what are we going to do? Anyway. Offend somebody? So, <laughs> so basically, we're going to show you the raw, the raw one-on-one that we would have as an example of a coach-athlete conversation. Then we're going to wrap that up with some takeaways that can be can apply more broadly. Hopefully, you also learn a little bit about us as a part of this conversation. So we'll see. We'll let you kind of peek in to a to an athlete conversation with well, me as the guinea pig. Just one quick caveat. I'm an unconventional coach. I I don't think we've said these things out loud. I'm an unconventional coach. I tell my athletes this in the one-on-ones when I do with them. I'm an intuitive coach. I understand the basic science, but I'm not researching the latest cutting-edge science. Um, and so a lot of what you guys are going to hear is not something you should take as a de facto version of what a coach athlete conversation would have at rogue we have many coaches chris is one who has individual one-on-one conversations doing exactly the same process that we're doing but chris is going to bring to it his analytical and um still intuitive because you are super intuitive but you're you bring a much more analytical angle to it and you just come at it from a different place so i want to make sure it's said i i am this is not a cult of personality number one number two (laughs) I'm not doing it the right way. I'm just doing it my way. So please, as you listen to this, take that as a grain of salt when you meet with your coach. Or if you don't meet with your coach, you should fucking demand to meet with your coach and make sure that you're having these kinds of conversations with them. Even if you don't, I have them with my athletes about twice a year. And so that's about the right amount of time to have. But it's important to just have them. Don't use this as the template for everything. Use this more as this is how one athlete and one coach go about that process. That's a good point. Steve's not going to bring up my workout history or even my race history and say, well, you did this, so we're going to do that, which is fine. 
I've accepted your style, so <laughs> it's okay with me, but you, you make a good point that this is not a template we're trying to lay out for people. And also, before we dive into it specifically, I did want to give people some context on me as a runner. We, I've talked about it some, but just to give people some history, I started running in 2000, so 17 years ago as a senior in college, essentially. I finished playing soccer and needed a way to stay in shape, so I started running, did a did a 10k on the road with a friend of mine who had run some cross country in, in high school and said, Hey, you should come out and run with me. Did that 10k in I don't know, something like 42 minutes and <laughs> was hooked on it's pretty fast for a first. Well, I mean, you're a soccer player. It wasn't bad. That's I was a soccer why, player. Yeah. I had 15 years of aerobic development as a soccer player. 15 years of 45 minute fart legs. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, I thought, well, this is kind of cool. I'm decent at it already. And, but was hooked on the competitive element of it as a way to at least compete with myself and continue the competitive juices I had had playing soccer in, in a team environment. So that began my running career. I had a really fairly quick progression uh, with one hiccup, had a stress fracture in, my, in training for my first marathon, which was my my next race. I went from 10K to marathon and Typical. got stress fracture as a result of that. <laughs> but after working through that, got... Um, you know, had a decent first marathon and ultimately a fairly rapid pro- progression for my first four years as a runner. Went from a 320-ish first marathon to a 245 or 246 in about four years. So when I was 24, that's what I ran in Austin. Then life happened, grad school happened, kids happened, work happened. Still continued in the sport, but stopped progressing. I'd also gotten to a point where I plateaued as a runner because I was trying to do too much all the time and too fast all the time. So really during that plateau kind of dove into training principles on my own, became a coach, started reading up on all this stuff, read about Arthur Lydia and all these things. Fast forward about five years from that point after having sort of a five-year plateau, came to Rogue, got involved here, started training with Team Rogue when you were the coach originally before John stepped in for a bit and kind of continued my journey again, but had some catching up to do. It took me from that point, three and a half years till my next marathon PR. And I've talked about it on this show where I kind of had this realization that my fastest times could still be ahead of me if I just did a few things that I needed to do. And so I did that. And so I've had, you know, a marathon PR three years ago, half marathon PR uh, two years ago and various other PRs, 10 K distance. I think the only distance I haven't PR'd in is the five K cause I haven't raced it <laughs> since, mm-hmm. since we've met. So that was all, all is happening last year. I was building up to, to have a command performance at the Boston marathon was ready to do that. Showed up on race day, thought that that was what's going to happen. It was warm, but that didn't matter for me that day because I ended up, having some pain in my heel that started early in that race that progressed to a stress fracture in the midst of the race. I had to walk the last four miles and had a personal worst marathon that day. And that started the last year for me, which has kind of been a start stop where I've had some injury issues, whereas normally I'd been fairly healthy after that initial stress fracture. So I've had some injury issues and then an elbow fracture nine weeks ago that has disrupted my training and so I'm kind of at a point now where I'm restarting again after 
some hiccups in the last year and trying to get back to that place. So it's a good time to have this conversation. Hopefully that history wasn't too boring, but it gives you some context. And I want to start from the beginning, which is back getting back to purpose, which we've talked about many times on this in our mental training episode, which is why am I doing this? Why are you here? Why, why are you here? meeting with me at this <laughs> point, sitting across the table with, from me, telling me that you think you have the best still ahead of you? Yes. Why do you think that, number one? And number two, why the hell are you doing this? So can you answer those <laughs> so questions? The Yes. I'll start with why am I doing this? And I'm curious to get your perspectives on this because we've, we've talked about it some, but never directly. And so this will be really our first time to have this conversation as a coach athlete. So everyone's hearing this for the first time and we have no idea where this is going to go. <laughs> but I think I do it for two reasons. <clears throat> one of the reasons is one of the reasons why I started in the beginning, which is that I'm a competitive person. I'm a competitor and running provides for me an outlet to compete particularly with myself. So for me, the running journey, half of it now is about competing from with myself to be a faster version of myself and to, as a result of that journey, uncover things about myself that I wouldn't find out otherwise. And so that's a big part of it. The second part of the equation, which at times I think has changed and evolved for me, Right now, I think this is a big part of it for me, which is that I want to do it to show others what's possible. I coach a bunch of athletes. I've got many, many on my roster right now that all look to me and have seen my struggles over the last year. And I've shared that all of that openly with them. They've also seen some of my successes, those that have trained with me longer. And right now, I want to prove to them that you can have these bumps in the road and lots of them you know in succession you can have a year like I've had and bounce back and still come through all of that and have your fastest results on the other side of it and so I want to do it to show them what's possible in themselves for all those of my athletes that struggle because we all do at various times struggle with ups and downs and injuries and times when we have to focus on other things and can't focus on training or whatever it may be so for me right now, I think it's about those two things. There are other reasons I do it. Like I really like the team aspect of Team Rogue and the collegiality of that and competing with those people I train with on Tuesdays and Thursdays and just being with them and training with them on Tuesdays and Thursdays is a big part of why I run generally. But in terms of being my fastest self, those first two things are the reason why I do it. Cool. <clears throat> so, you know, whenever we talk about statement of purpose... I usually ask my athletes to write it out for me because when they, I have the ability to di sort of digest it, they have the ability to sort of really think about it as sort of a, you know, I'm going to shout it out from the rooftops. If you listen to that first, that for the, the podcast where we discussed this particular topic, but you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this because you're not somebody who just fucking pulls shit out of your ass like <laughs> me. So, <clears throat> I mean, both of those two are really meaningful and worthwhile statements of purpose. So, but there's some questions I need to, I got a little, I got to sort of test yes. the underside of the, of the boat to see if it'll hold water. Um, and so two pokes there are, one is this idea of competing with yourself. Um, it means that there's usually when you're in competition with other people, 
they are the moving target. So they're the target that you're shooting for and that, they, that you're seeing. The challenge with being competing with yourself or competing against your best self or trying to be run a beautiful race like we say sometimes. Those, those are great speech topics, right? Because nobody pokes a hole in your idea because you're going to walk away and they're going to clap and you're going to move on, right? But what does that really mean? Because I think that in order for that to be a statement of purpose, to be something really strong, can you give us an example or, or maybe not an example because that might not be appropriate, but just maybe delve in a little bit more about some kind of specifics for you personally, where you know that you will have been wrestling with the angel, to use the biblical analogy I love to use, because that's what you're saying here. I love this as a statement of purpose because it's what we do as human beings, right? Both of these two statements of purpose are Chris being the best human he can be. But what does it mean for you to wrestle with the angel? Because the angel is, is your version of God or a God in you, right? So what does that mean, you competing against yourself? Because if you said you wanted to beat Brian Morton, well, we'd line that shit up and try to figure out how to do it because I ain't scared of nobody. But <laughs> I want to know what it means to compete with yourself because now as, a, as your coach, how do I use this? Because as a coach, what I do, this is kind of interesting to do this because as a coach, what I do with my athletes is say, is my athlete full of shit later on? I'm able to push Chris when he's having a bad day or he's having a great day. When he's having his worst day, I can use it to lift him up. When he's on his greatest day, I can use it to pull him down because neither our greatest days or our worst days are our real days. And that is not what happens in marathoning. Ask Allison. We just talked about 35K of shit sandwiches and 7K of I can't believe this just happened. So the question is, what does it mean? How, how do you really look at it in a way that I'll be able to use as your coach to help you? So I'll start by giving you an example. When I was 34, running Bryan College Station, that was almost... That was our first it, our first cycle together, correct? Well, after you coming back. After I came yes. back. I don't even remember the first yeah, time yeah. I coached <laughs> you. I don't even remember. I don't, I'm not even sure. I, I, that, that's such a shame. Yeah, well, that's yeah. just a after damning indictment to where I was at that time <laughs> right. in my career. But anyway. But uh, <laughs> I was 34. I was competing with my 24-year-old self. Ah, yeah. And that in that cycle and in that race, I thought about that. And now that I'm three years older, 37, going to be 38 in July, I am more aware of my mortality than ever. And life is, my body's changing mm -hmm. as I age. And so there's something about beating your younger self as you age that's powerful and empowering. Because I was definitely stronger, probably faster in terms of raw speed when I was 24. Mm -hmm. But... When I was 34, I was wilier, <laughs> not stronger physically maybe, but aerobically stronger. And now I think I'm both of those things and more. So it's, it's wrapped up in this idea of sort of facing my own mortality and realizing that if I can beat my younger self, that's hugely empowering. So just to get to brass tacks, that means tell us exactly the time that you need to run that is your former best self. Well, I was going to get to goals in a bit, but... Um, well, we're going to go there, but, yeah. that, but this is a statement of purpose, because well, now what you've I mean, done, so, so now then, what you've when done... When I was 34, I ran 245, yep. 40X. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know the exact PR. I'm analytical, right. but not that OCD. Right. And, but I don't want to beat that 
to me, beating that would be cool, but I don't want to beat that. I wanna, you know you already did. I can beat that. You know you already did in our prep for Boston. You just well, get the chance and, to show and it. And honestly, I did it in Martian as well on Correct. a hot day. I Correct. ran 247, but that was easily worth yes. more on a 70 for degree sure. day. So I know I can beat that, but ultimately I want to run 240. I've told you before my lifetime right. goal that I set arbitrarily when I was in the 20s. It still means something. Mm-hmm. I want to run 240. Because that's a goal to me. It's like if you told, if you asked me, said, "Hey, Chris, can you run two forty three?" I'd say, "Yeah, I think I can run two forty three." Hey, Chris, can you run two forty two? I'd be like, "Yeah, I think I can run two forty two." Chris, can you run two forty one? Yeah, I think I can run two forty one. If you asked me if I can run under two forty, I think I can do it, but I don't know. That's the point where it starts to get. I don't know, and and so I know that kind of gets me into that realm of the impossible a little bit and but i i think it's possible but that's what starts to make my sphincter pucker as you say yeah and so i want to run there now that's not necessarily you know my next marathon because i there might be a stepwise in between but um but i want to run 240 for the marathon 239 239x yeah so i want to i want to then ask you to consider refining your statement of purpose okay because you really aren't trying to beat your former self you feel like you already have. What you're doing is you're trying to be the best you you can be or, you know, to sort of, I, I saw this, it, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, I went and saw with my, my brother and his daughter, my niece, and Ruth, my life partner, we went and saw Guardians of the Universe Part 2 or whatever it is, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't see Part 1, I was just going with my niece to go watch it. I cried eight times in that movie. It killed me, man. <laughs> it killed me because they're being superheroes. And I had just given that, you know, I talked about this about Boston. Yes. You're asking yourself to be a hero. Like you want to, and what does that mean in our current society? It's not Superman coming out of a fucking, out of the, out of the, out of the phone booth anymore. It's something else. And so let's reclare, not today, but let's think about clarifying that because I think that you, what you're saying is yes that's how you got to this point about what your statement of purpose is but what your still state what your real statement of purpose is sort of is encapsulated in the second part which is you want to be a role model you want to be the anti Barkley right you want Charles Barkley is famous at right. least in our era of saying he was not a role model and what you're saying is you want to be a role model which means that you're even a role model to yourself and you said this in a really interesting way about Allison you said, I heard you say it in that interview with her. He's like, she inspired you. Why? Because she ran again under 239. And you run with her on a consistent basis. You know she's not that much better than you. She's, she, is, she is doing more volume than you are. And she is, has way more successes than you have. But she's, you know there's days where you've had her on the ropes or you've been right with her. And she at least can draw you to the thing that you want to do. And so... You know what it means to be a hero. Role model is such a cheesy word, and hero is such a cheesy word. I don't know the right word for it. That's something we we're working through in this podcast is really what does it mean to be that champ, like the best person you can be, the best runner you can be as an indicator to your athletes, as you said, to your teammates because this breed of core of a team is important to you, to yourself because that's crucial and key. I mean, we're, I know we're talking meta stuff here. It kind of sounds a little bit like we're in like a therapy session, but this is what this statement of purpose is. And, I, and the reason I'm not poking holes in Chris as a human being, I'm saying to him, let's get underneath the 
bottom and the murky deep of what this boat that we all see above water, but underneath it is the real guts of it. And the real guts of it are you want to prove that you're capable and able to be. And that's that's what Carl Jung's entire idea of the archetypal viewpoint is. The entire idea of Western symbology is around this idea of being the best you you can be and using these models to help you get there. So damn straight, (laughs) double pump slam dunk on statement of purpose, but refine it a little bit, I think, just to take that part of your old self out because you're already there in my opinion. And I know I think it's going to be, I'm going to have to redo this in, in a year when you kill it and we got to go on to the next goal. I don't want to have to do that then. I want to do it now. It's like, okay, what is that? And let's go after it. So the next like part, it. you're always the leader in these things. So I'm yeah. going to lead with the next yeah. part, which is we already got there, right? What's your BHAG? And we have this term we use here, and it's used perennially around the con- around the world about big, hairy, audacious goal, the thing that makes your sphincter pucker, the big, big thing, preferably is long down the line, and you just stated it. So yep. part of your statement of purpose, which happens with these things frequently, we put them as separate pieces just in case the statement of purpose. Some athletes I've coached, their statement of purpose has a lot to do with their faith. Like there's a couple key athletes that I've worked with who, um, you know, they wanted to be a role model in the same way that you stated, but it had a lot to do with their Christian purpose and who they were as, as they were as a, as a representative of the kind of man or woman that is representative of that. So that allows me to then use and push the levers I need to, but it has nothing to do with their goal. Whereas yours was sort of kind of yeah. a nice mix of that. So what is your, your big, your big hairy audacious goal at this point in time is 239X. Yep. Right? Yes. Correct? Absolutely. Cool. So what will it take? So with that very pregnant question, what will it take? We're going to stop this episode, episode 23. We're going to pick this up in episode 24, continuing the discussion between Steve and I on my goals and the coach-athlete relationship. We'll talk about how I can now begin achieving that goal as Steve will walk me through it. And then we'll wrap it up with some summary tips on the coach-athlete relationship and how to improve your coach-athlete relationship. Thanks, as always, for listening. Again, this is episode 23. Check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rogue Running. We'll talk to you soon.